meant to be a glorious, uh, enjoyable part and uh, to get you awake for the sermon. So I hope you're wide-eyed. Uh, can I just encourage you? I was just thinking, as we were listening to that, these aren't important. Keys of the kingdom, right here, left them in my pocket, meant to stay there. Uh, an encouragement, though, that confession that we read, really lengthy, lots of words, you can be tempted to think of it as a really uh, scholarly uh, uh, confession book thing, just for the pastors, just for the scholars. I want to encourage you, though, that, that book, that confession, if you have a, a soft copy free off the internet or if you've uh, purchased one, that is a pastoral, helpful book for everybody to be able to read through. It's just so helpful as we struggle with sin and as, uh, just even as we saw today, like if, if, if you had been struggling with sin and, and assurance and wondering if you would indeed see the end of your salvation, uh, even to death and then eternity with Christ. That, that sort of passage right there is a reminder. It's all in Jesus. It's all been done. It is for you and promised. So I hope that's an encouragement and I hope that uh, you turn to that regularly for questions and for education. But for now, you can go to Mark chapter 2 because as uh, Vic said, we're, we're continuing on through our series and it's our practice here at uh, Hope Church to, um, just as the confession said this morning, we believe that Jesus ministers his gospel, his salvation, and all of its benefits in and by his word. Growth in the Christian life comes in and by the word. Knowledge of Jesus, greater fruitfulness, greater obedience, greater assurance, it all comes in and by the word. And so it's our joy to open and, and just walk through the word that God has inspired through his apostles. And Today we come to Mark chapter 2, verse 18 and through 22, and we're, we're going to see uh, some more of the opposition building. We, we've, uh, we're only in five sermons into the book of, book of Mark, but it's taken a while because we've had some, had some uh, other things going on in the mornings. But, but let me just recap you in case you knew or you've you forgotten what, what the context is. Mark is all about the arrival of the kingdom of God because the king, Jesus, has arrived. And so we see Mark chapter 1, just this explosive entry of Jesus coming, declaring his kingdom, preaching repentance, getting baptized, beating the devil in the, de in the desert, and then casting demons out of people, healing people, and all of the life. We have been shown his absolute authority and his divine power. And, and what Mark wants us to see, especially writing to a Gentile Roman audience, is that Jesus is superior in power and authority and love and grace to all of your petty Gentile gods, to all of your other religions that have been formulated through times past. Jesus is the real king. He is the real God. Bow down and worship him. And so chapter one just showed us the explosive power of Jesus and everybody loved it. They were following him. They were praising him. They were loving it. But chapter two has started off showing us opposition. Uh, you, you remember as he, he healed the paralytic and said that his sins were forgiven and, and everybody in their thoughts were quite uncomfortable with that. They said, he's not allowed to forgive anybody, only God can do that. He said, yeah, well, watch this also. Clicks and the guy stands up. He says, I can do what I want. I have authority to forgive sins. And then uh, uh, the next uh, passage that we saw, it was he, him forgiving Levi, the tax collector, the enemy of the Jewish state, really working for the Romans forgives him, calls him as his disciple, and then goes and eats in his house. And then everybody starts getting even more annoyed. What's this holy man doing with the unrighteous prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors? And he pushes back on that saying, I'm a spiritual doctor. I need to go to the spiritually sick. If you don't think that's you, I have nothing to do with you. 
Today, we're also going to see him be questioned about fasting, the religious practice of fasting. And then next week, we're going to see it explode as he goes against and really opposes the legalistic, even demonic practice of Sabbath that the Jews had gotten into, how they had perverted God's good design. And we'll see how how the Christians should think about the Sabbath. But today, we're talking about fasting. So can you go to chapter 2, verse 18 with me? I'm going to read through it, and uh, we will uh, exegete it. May God bless to us the reading of his inspired, holy, authoritative, perfect word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The, old wine, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. May God bless us as we read today. So we're going to look today at, at the question Jesus gets, the comparison Jesus gives, and the application we should uh, live in. Because, of course, Mark is, is writing this to tell the overarching story of Jesus in salvation, But he's also, uh, uh, Jesus is teaching these things so that we might have something uh, uh, to understand about new kingdom life, about new covenant living. So we'll look at an application of what fasting should be like for us. But look over to verse 18 as we start walking through this. It says that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. This is John the Baptist, John the baptizer. He had disciples who, you might think that surely once Jesus came, all of John's disciples went over to Jesus, but that's not true. They sort of stayed somewhat a a distinct school of thought. Uh, Even though they believed in Jesus, they followed John. And then the other group here is the, the, the scribes and Pharisees had disciples after them. They were in the, in the Gospels, they're the bad guys. They're always the bad guys. One of them converts that we see, which is Nicodemus. The rest of them are just bad guys. So here they are with their, uh, with their, their fasting. And the other accounts of this in the other Gospels say that it's actually John's disciples who come up to Jesus to ask this. And the question is, is pretty simple. We're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting. Hint, it's always a bad deal to be on the side of the Pharisees. Never assume you're right if you're rebuking Jesus and siding with the Pharisees. But moving on, they say, we're fasting, they're fasting, your disciples aren't fasting. And and here's the implication. There's authority on you that you fast. The traditions say you ought to fast. You are, they are saying by implication, you and your disciples are in sin. Why are you not doing as we as good religious people are doing? There's different reasons that they're fasting here. The Pharisees had had added layer upon layer of rule and prescription on top of the Old Testament commandments. And this happens in every area and sphere of life, in their tithing, in their praying, in their fasting, in their Sabbaths. And we see Jesus attack all of those areas. But today they're asking about fasting. 
If you look at the Old Testament, it may surprise you to know that there is only one prescribed fast in the whole Old Testament uh, uh, scriptures. You might wonder why that is. Why did God make them fast only once in this whole religious calendar? It's because God loves food and made it for you to have a fine, medium, rare sirloin on Sunday afternoons. God loves food and gives it to us to feast in. That was the first commandment that God ever gave. Adam, garden, eat. Before I make you a wife and you start having to wipe your face and follow all the etiquette rules, just feast, man. God loves food. And, and fasting is appropriate. It's biblical. It's helpful. And, and we'll look at that. But the scribes and the Pharisees had made it something so regular. In the Old Testament, they had some people had added rules so that every second month was basically a, a prescribed fast. By the time it got to the Pharisees, they were fasting twice a week. And it sort of showed a, a symbol of repentance, outward holiness, and devotion, consecration to God. Look at how much I'm not doing. Look at how much I'm not pleasuring myself. Look at how much I'm not enjoying my life. I am fasting. I'm holy. I'm repentant. John's disciples, though, had a different reason to not fast. John's disciples were fasting probably because, in, in some way, John was a bit of an ascetic. Okay, do, do you know what I mean by that? that he was an ascetic in the sense that he was pushing away for very intentional purposes from outward comforts. So the dude ate bugs and honey in a desert. That's going to tell you he's not a big sizzlers guy. He's not a big soft, nice, cushy clothing kind of guy. He wore camel's hair, belts of leather, and ate bugs dipped in wild honey. It was an intentional way, like Elijah, of showing distinction from the pomp and the riches and, the, and the, the gluttony of the day. He was intentional about that. No doubt his disciples were intentional about that. But like the Pharisees, John's disciples wanted to push their practices onto everybody else. The other reason John's disciples probably were fasting is because it's right at this period in time that John has been arrested and thrown in prison. He might even have just been killed. So they would be fasting in mourning. Their, their master is gone. Their leader has been taken away. Of course, it's appropriate to mourn and fast. And to these two schools of thought, Jesus gives a very, uh, a very vivid, helpful picture. They're one that makes a massive claim on himself. The, the Pharisees fasted as a badge of holiness. And even in Matthew 6, we see that Jesus talks about them and says, when they're fasting, you know it. They, you know, it's two hours in and they're, they're crying for their hunger and they put on disheveled clothes and they rough up their hair to make it look like they're really suffering for the Lord and they walk about so everyone can see them. Well, Jesus, Jesus condemns that. But this is uh, what Jesus says is, what he's going to show us is, what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus' disciples and the fasting disciples? Well, the difference is this. Read verse 19 with me. This is the comparison. We've seen the question, now the comparison. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Here's the difference. The Pharisees fasted to glorify themselves. 
And John's disciples fasted because they were missing their master and leader. And Jesus says, by using the, the wedding analogy, if I'm the bridegroom and I've come in, then two things are very inappropriate. One, make this wedding day about you as a groomsman. We all know that the, the bridesmaids aren't allowed to look prettier than the bride. That's a rule. Same goes for groomsmen. It's just less talked about, but grooms love to look really good on their, on their wedding day. Here he is. He's saying, if this is my wedding day, it's not about you disciples of the Pharisees. And if I'm the bridegroom, there's no point crying and fasting that I'm not here. I am here. So, so both schools have no reason to apply their rules to Jesus' disciples. And the overarching reason is that Jesus hasn't even addressed yet is, there's nothing in scripture commanding us to. Get your filthy religious hands off of me and my disciples. You don't make rules. But we're getting ahead of us. That's for later. So here he is. He says, look, this is, this is a wedding. Imagine a wedding. And this is so significant because the Old Testament paints the Jews as the bride and God as the, as the groom. Now in comes Jesus and he's saying, I'm the groom. He's making quite a claim. He's making the claim that I'm the one waited for. I'm the one who has been betrothed to them. I'm the one who saves. I am the king and I'm here. Huge claim. And so the appropriate response in that season, in that season when Jesus is with them, is thankfulness, is joy, is obedience with the king rather than fasting and mourning and being all sorry for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever been to or traveled to or watched a documentary on Eastern Middle Eastern or, or Indian or Asian, uh, 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 Western Asian uh, uh, weddings. When I visited my Indian neighbor to go and try and share the gospel and have a nice dinner with him, I had not known what an Indian wedding uh, entailed. And so I went over to his, and, and I say, give this example, because I think we, when, we need, when we have a one-hour ceremony and then a three-hour dance party with dinner, uh, we sort of lose what Jesus is saying here when he says it's a wedding feast. So I went over to my mate's house, and he was cooking, and we were, we were talking, and and we sort of, uh, he was asking about our wedding, and, and we mentioned that we had a wedding video. We could show it to you if you wanted, and he, he loved that. And, and he's in the back of my mind thinking, I'm going to use every element in this video, the gospel that's preached, the poem we read, the, the foot washing we do. It's lame, but it's super cute. Uh, and, and everything else that we do, I'm going to use all of those to talk to him about the gospel. We do that because Jesus, you know, this is what a Christian ceremony looks like. And so a 12-minute video goes by, and he says, that's very nice. Can I show you mine? His house. I want, I'll, I'll use that as the gospel jump, but yeah, okay, let's watch yours quickly and then we'll go back to talk about mine and the gospel. And he puts it in and, and 25 minutes later, we're still watching a video of, of a dancing crowd and he goes, this is night number three and it keeps on going. He had a two-week-long wedding. I, I wasn't ready for that. I don't know if I would have said yes if I knew, but I'm, I'm glad I watched it. It was, it was amazing, so many colors. And then, and then at the end of it, I, I realized there was never a ceremony. But they must do things entirely different there. And he said, oh, no, the, the wedding is the next disc. And in goes the next disc for another 25 minutes. And if you're watching Brother Undeep, I, I loved it. It was amazing and it was great. But I couldn't then sort of throw his to the side and get, yeah, but remember mine? You know, Jesus, you know, and I, it was totally lost. So I had to find other opportunities. But the point is that the, the Eastern, especially in the same way, that the Jewish mindset of a wedding 
was not an afternoon on a Saturday. You had to take leave for this. You had to set two weeks apart, bring your money, bring your food, and it was a party of significance. So how inappropriate would it be if the groomsman comes riding in and here he is, the party's about to start, and over in the corner you've got a table of his groomsmen who are saying, actually, we didn't check our calendars. This is fasting fortnight. We can't party with you. We can't drink anything. We're going to be over here distracting everybody, and we can't help you with the food. More for everybody else. I know that's the way you're thinking. That's how I thought. But no, Jesus is saying it's inappropriate. That is, that is so misplaced. Right now is time for joy. You're going to sit there hungry as if, as if I'm not coming to bless and celebrate with you. So Jesus has used this picture, and Jesus is showing them that in the middle of, of, this, of this coming of Jesus, among those who recognize it, they ought to stop praying and fasting for the coming of the king. They need to stop praying and fasting that they are alone without the Messiah in the world. He's saying, I've come, I'm here. If you realize it, you too will stop your fasting. You couldn't imagine, could you? Right in the, in the middle of a week-long festivity, them just cutting off the food from everybody, doing a, a, a few-day fast. It's, an, it's inappropriate. That's not the time. But can you imagine if the groom himself stood up four days into the party, said to all of the honored guests and all of those he'd invited that this coming Thursday, I'm going to be betrayed by a groomsman. I'm going to be dragged to the street. I'm going to be shot in the head and my body will be dragged away. How, how confused you would be, how, how strange that would sound. That's exactly what Jesus does in verse 20. He says, they're not fasting. It's, it's a party. They're not fasting. The groom is here, but I will leave them. I will be in the language of Isaiah 53, verse 8. He's doing that quote intentionally. He says, I will be cut off. I will be snatched away. And then they will fast. You see, this is the first reference to Jesus' death in the book of Mark. It's power, it's authority, it's amazing. Now it's opposition, and he's saying, this is a time for celebration, and yet, yet I will die. The only reason there is celebration is because there is death of the Messiah in our place for our sins. But Jesus throws in this foreshadow in verse 20 there when he said that. And then Jesus starts giving imagery. So he says, look at, these are, can we just be honest with ourselves? These are well-abused texts. And these are texts that people use to abuse other people. If you've ever been in maybe a, maybe a church scuffle and one guy likes the organ and one hip young guy likes the electric guitar and, and here they start going, well, you're old wineskins and, and the Spirit is doing new things among us and you need to remove the old button-downs and remove the old, you know, and, and so it goes. This is new wine, you know, your old wineskin or Maybe it's, it's an excuse to bring in new leadership or it's an excuse for different styles. I've, I've heard it all. It's all an abuse of the text. Or maybe you've even heard it said when we talk about old skins and new skins and old patches, new patches. Maybe you've even heard it or on your first reading, you take it to mean that Jesus is, is saying that the whole Old Testament law and, and revelation is an old raggedy piece of cloth that just needs to be done away with. God's starting fresh. It's bad news. Jesus is saying neither of those things. 
not the cheap, exegetically lazy uh, application that is often made, nor is it the, uh, the, the, the way that removes and throws away the whole Old Testament. No, Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the old law, but to fulfill it and establish it. So what is it that he means? Let's, let's read what he says. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. What he's saying is that he's preparing them for what's coming in his ministry. He's saying that if you take my ministry, which is coming to destroy the old systems of man-made religion, coming to destroy the, the scribal, pharisaical traditions and laws, I'm coming to burn them to the ground and establish a new foundation upon which the kingdom will be built. Let me prepare you. If you try and take my kingdom and add it to your old ways without repentance, without confession of your sin and leaving behind your own laws of self-righteousness, then both will be destroyed. Like every good four-wheel driver knows, you can't just top up your diesel Prado with some unleaded because that's what you've got available. The whole thing, free advice there. If you save your car, you owe me. Free advice. You cannot just mix them hoping for the best. One has to completely go and the new come and take its place. So the, the imagery is that if you take fresh new, new cloth, and you put it on an old, uh, old garment, the, the new cloth, whenever you wear it, you put it through the wash, you know this, it always shrinks. You put unshrunk cloth onto already shrunk clothing, it's going to, first time through the wash, will rip an even bigger hole. Nothing will be helped. It will be entirely useless. So Jesus is saying, your rules of fasting which are symbolic of a bigger man-made religious system, which is not based on the authority of the word of God, is an old garment, and my commandments cannot simply be added to it. I'm bringing a whole new gospel that starts at the root. Salvation by grace, by you casting your faith alone, no deeds, no actions, no self-righteousness, no obedience, you cast your faith to Jesus, and in him alone you are saved. And, and taking individuals saved through faith, God builds a kingdom who are freed from the law and yet obeying the law out of joy. That is the kingdom Jesus is building, and it will destroy all legalism and man-made religion if ever they try and mix. And then he uses the example of wineskins. And no good old raised Baptist, this is not grape juice skins. This is real fortified wineskins. A nice Shiraz growing in a goatskin sack. This is what Jesus says. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. And, and his explanation is that, of course, it ferments, doesn't it? You, you take a, a fresh batch of wine and put it in fresh leather. The, the wine in there is going to ferment and grow and expand with all the gases in there. And with it, the leather will expand until it reaches its max. Now, if you use that wine and then refill it with new wine, it, it, Jesus says everyone knows this, so it's pretty simple. It will expand again beyond its limit, and the brand new expensive wine, the liters of it, and the, the, and the old antique now could have been used for something wonderful, wineskin will break and both be wasted. 
No, it's not talking about music styles, clothing styles, ministry styles. He's saying, again, that the man-made way of religion that ignores the authority of the Word of God, that adds to it, and that focuses on self, and today, specifically, the argument is around fasting, that needs to be removed because Jesus is bringing the new wine of the gospel. There is a sense in which God was more tolerant of error in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying the Old Testament had errors, or that the Old Covenant was sinful. But God, as Paul says in Acts 17, he tolerated ignorance. It doesn't mean he didn't send people to hell, but he, he overlooked that time. And now Jesus is saying, now that the full revelation of God is here in flesh, now that you'll have a completed text of God's scripture, God has established a zero-tolerance policy on error and mingling. It cannot happen in gospel ministry, wherever true gospel ministry goes. And I want you to think about this in your own family, how you speak to your kids, your wife, your husband, your parents, how you minister to your own soul when you're overcome with grief and sin or trials. Or when you try and serve in a church, or when you try and love people near to you, maybe in a fellowship group, how do you measure others and yourself? Is it with man-made, additional, added onto the Bible's regulations? Maybe even you take good laws from the Bible, like fasting, like anything, and, and measure yourself by it, seeing whether you measure up, and, and you stick that on other people, and you, you stick it to yourself, and no one measures up. You either become immensely proud or terribly depressed. In the age of the gospel, I'm inviting and commanding you to think of all things, all people, all of your relationship with God on the basis of grace alone. That God has brought to you in and by the word, Jesus Christ, your salvation, your righteousness, your assurance, and your glory. So wherever true gospel ministry goes, it, it ruins uh, self-righteous regulations. And today we now get to the, the worst part of this sermon, which is fasting as an application for our actual life. We, we could just sort of take Jesus and all the way he's pushing against their, their rules and then sort of hope that the brackets are and Christians just eat all the time. I can tell that some of you, like me, love that part of the Christian. It's celebration, all good gifts from God, eat. But that's not the case. Jesus does actually expect that we fast. And so I want to take a moment to just talk about what true fasting will entail because in verse 20, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away or cut off from them. That was his death. And, and it seems evident from the accounts that the disciples did fast from his death until his resurrection. But even now, in another sense, Jesus is taken away that he's up in heaven. And so he expects that we fast. He says they will fast in that day. So the question becomes then, how should we fast? As Christians, we have inherited a kingdom that awaits its full manifestation and completion. And so we have reason to feast. Right? Visited Texas and went to some Southern Baptists in America. I'm telling you, they got that right. Feasting was a mate. Christians do it well. Feasting is part of the Christian life as an act of worship. However, 
because the kingdom is not yet finished, because there is so much need in the Christian life and in the world and in the church, fasting is also appropriate. And I want to give a, a, some balance here so that we don't think wrongly about fasting. Joyful feasting and enjoying God's good gifts, right? When you do, we do that, and we do do that. When we do that in the Christian life, what we're saying is God is good. His creation is good. I don't need to be holy by not eating. Right? God is good. His creation is good and wonderful, and his redemption is real. He's redeeming food. However, when we focus on fasting, right? When we take times of focused fasting, the putting away of food for a certain amount of time, we are saying God is good, his creation is wonderful, and redemption is real, but it is not yet complete. There are still sinners outside of Jesus Christ. I still have sins of my own that are unconquered. I still have habits that remain that I need to overcome. My brothers and sisters still struggle in their sins. My prayer life is still dull. All of these things are still true. So while we feast, we also fast in some small sections of our life. So how, this is some, some, if you can turn with me to 1 John, let's just go straight there. 1 John chapter 2, I'll give some principles for what fasting ought to look like before we close out. 1 John chapter 2. And a, uh, a full disclosure, I, while I was writing this sermon, my wife was cooking me the best homemade cheeseburger you have ever seen. So I, I don't think I've ever written uh, sermon notes in such quite a hypocritical manner, and I'm not at all sorry for it. There was at one point that the next night, we, we had the same thing, and I was literally wiping fat juice off of my fingers to write about fasting. So, so forgive me, uh, I, I'm not at all sorry, but, uh, but here I think I really struck the perfect balance of Christian life. Uh, so, so there it is, full disclosure. Uh, <clears throat> so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the balance here is that world does not mean the created the creation. World in John's writing means the evil system against God's people, against God reigned over by the devil and sin. So don't love that world. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, here's what he's talking about, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So when we fast, we take this reality as true. That this world is created by God. It's good, but there are desires in this world. There are patterns in this world which are so easily dominating. And, and so fasting is a period of putting aside food in order to focus ourselves more intently on holiness. In order to sharpen our intensity in our devotion to God. Fasting is a, is a way of going without the blessing of food in order to focus and intensify our longing for Christ and starve and weaken our desires for this world. So in light of what Jesus said about there's some old practices that are inappropriate for the new kingdom, and by way of a, 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 some, some broader biblical principles, I'm going to talk about what 
some elements of fasting that were, that are now inappropriate. Number one, a depressed and mournful fast is not appropriate in the kingdom. There may be times that we are fasting in mourning of a, of a dying loved one, of, of some great loss that has happened in the Christian life or kingdom. That's fair, but it's not out of a place of depression because all of our fasting, even our mourning, even our, our, our disasters are still taking place in between the resurrection and the consummation of the kingdom. All of our fasting, even in sadness, is still saying in the background, there is a time coming when all of this will be undone. And so we're filled with hope and anticipation, even in our mourning. Secondly, it's not coming from a place of requirement or commandments. It is expected that Christians fast, and we are in no way commanded to fast in the New Testament. This might surprise you. We have a gospel freedom. We have an, an ability to exercise this discipline voluntarily, but you are not commanded it by, uh, by Scripture, and don't let anybody tell you that you are. Not certain times, anyway. Thirdly, it is entirely inappropriate to fast for show, like the Pharisees did, to fast to impress people, to, to, to make a show of your own holiness. Friends, in the gospel, we have received righteousness, redemption, sanctification, glory, and eternal life freely in Jesus Christ, nothing in and of ourselves. Not only are you unable to impress God, it is unfitting and it is embarrassing when you try. Don't try and impress God for show in fasting. Don't try and impress others for show in fasting. It's, it's quite paradoxical when somebody does that. Entirely contradictory. We saw in 1 John that one of the sins that, that I think we should be fasting to kill is the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, the, the gluttony, the, the, the consumerism, the, 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 the being enslaved to desires. When you fast, you should be killing that desire. If you fast for show, you're feeding that desire. So we should not fast to show people our pride of life. So we should not fast for show. Also, we should not fast in a sense of lack of assurance. In other words, wondering if God's promises are true, wondering if this is ultimately worth it, wondering if God delights to hear his praying children. We don't fast like that. We fast as children who know God listens, who know he sent his son, who know that he is ours in heaven and we are here, his here on earth. We fast with assurance and, and, and yes, difficulty in believing, but everything we pray for, every promise that we fast to see manifested has already been given a down payment in the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit in Pentecost. Whatever you want to ask, the down payment has already been made if it's a biblical promise. So you can fast with assurance that Jesus will answer this. And also, let me give a word of warning that we are not to fast for things that are promised in our union with Christ. It is so very common for people in, in a desire to be zealous, and we should be, and a desire to deepen our relationship with Christ, they fast for things we've already been promised by union in Christ, and that is a sin. Fasting for things, for example, 
like forgiveness of sins. You do not fast to be forgiven of sins. That comes by faith in Jesus. You do not fast to receive the Spirit of God. He has been given by faith in Jesus. You do not gain him by your works. Do not fast in order to be received as righteous in God's eyes. That will not help. That is a sin. You have been received as righteous in your union with Christ. And, and so anything else that is promised by faith alone, don't try and gain by fasting. But all those things that have been promised for those who pray and await on God, them we should pursue. So some very quick how-tos on on fasting. Number one, start very small. And then, and then through discipline, work up to bigger, more, uh, 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 more, uh, need, more uh, demanding fasts, fasts. This is to impress nobody. It doesn't matter if you just need to try to get past one skipped lunch. If you need to start there, you start there. Start with one day. Don't, don't start with 40 days in the desert like Jesus. Not a good way to start. So start small but do start. Maybe you can fast in small groups or your fellowship group or some friends that are praying about a particular thing. You can fast in groups to set time aside together to do it wherever you all are in order to encourage each other, keep each other accountable. Number three, fast with a purpose. Maybe it's strength against a particular habit or sin. Maybe it's an unsaved person that you want to fast and pray for. Maybe it's for direction in your life or ministry or for the church, you know, directional guidance. You can fast for those things. Number four, fast in a way that inconveniences only you. Don't fast on your mate's wedding. We saw that in Jesus. Don't fast uh, for family dinners on Saturday night. Don't, don't fast in a way that just so happens to be every February 14th and anniversary so you don't have to pay for a big romantic dinner. Don't do that. Fast in a way that keeps it secret. Fast in a way that only inconveniences you so you're not dragging everybody else in, involuntarily into your fast. Pick a way to be discreet. Pick a way to be uh, uh, only you inconvenienced unless other people desire to do it with you. And so the foundation of everything that we've seen today, and I, and I hope that we do go away and fast, and, and we do go away and, and uh, engage in this discipline in our life and are grown by it. But the foundation, let me remind you, is entirely new to what John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples tried. We are not fasting because you are obligated. We are not fasting because you have sinned to put away in order to be made right with God. We're not fasting in order to impress other people or because we are trying to, to gain a, a right standing before our Father. We fast because we are celebrating. We fast in faith, knowing we have been forgiven. We are assured of salvation. Jesus is our glorious Savior and King. And because we're in this kingdom and there's so much glory yet to come, we will fast and pray to the glory of Jesus. Let's all pray together now. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you that Jesus gives to us such, such a powerful testimony to your grace that as king he came to proclaim the kingdom and to establish the kingdom in his own blood. We thank you, God, that we need to bring nothing to you this morning to impress you in order to go out with your blessing. We come empty-handed. 
without clothes, without anything in our spiritual account, and we, we cry simply that you would hide us in the rock of Christ. We would receive his righteousness, his holiness, his blessing, his love. We thank you, God, that if we simply look to that and believe, we leave our sins behind and grasp Christ, we receive everything in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give to us a zeal and a discipline and a desire to increase in our fervency in our spiritual life. And once you use fasting in the right mindset and in a helpful practice, once you help us to use that in our life in order to uh, take greater uh, uh, steps towards the fulfilling of your kingdom, we, we thank you, Jesus, for your word. We thank you for your spirit who is here to help us and lead us and guide us. And it's in your name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen.